0: I think inspired leadership is really filling people with the rational part of what we need to do in leadership, but also
1: the heart. Welcome to Inspiring Leaders, the podcast that shares ideas, perspectives, and best practices from great leaders around the world to help you become a more inspired leader. Welcome back to Inspiring Leaders. I'm your host and executive coach, Terry Lepofsky, and I know that you're going to enjoy the show today particularly if you've ever felt stressed out at work. And let's face it, who hasn't? Our guest today is based in Chicago, and she's the founder of DS Leadership Life. She's dedicated her life to helping leaders and their organizations become more mindful, positive, and creative. She holds a master's degree in positive psychology and a doctorate of science in physical therapy. She draws on her unique background in improv theater and physical therapy to bring engaging embodiment and team-building elements to her coaching, along with strong leadership abilities and highly trained facilitation skills to bring individuals and teams into greater relationships, creativity, and ultimately success. Daphne Scott, welcome to Inspiring Leaders.
0: Hey, Terry. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I I know we're going to have an amazing conversation.
1: Well, I've got the red carpet rolled out to you for a warm welcome here this morning. Before we dig into this topic on mindful leadership, let's get to know you a little bit. So tell me something. Who or what inspires Daphne?
0: Do you know, it's such a great question and I want to say this and it's going to sound a bit reductionist in a way. I want to tell you I'm inspired by people every day. For example, I was Driving and it was very, very stormy. I wasn't driving, actually. I was in a cab and it was incredibly stormy. And somehow we we're trying to navigate driving on these very stormy roads. And somehow the cab driver must have suspected I was feeling a bit nervous because it was, you couldn't see anything. I mean, we probably shouldn't have been on the highway, actually. And he said, I'm going to slow down because I'm sensing you're feeling a little nervous. <laughs> said, wow. And I'm, I'm in the back seat. Right, exactly. It wasn't saying anything. It's moments like that. He was paying attention in some way. Him just saying that, like, I relaxed immediately. I knew he was paying attention. He slowed down, got into a different lane. It's moments like that that I find not only touching, but also inspiring. That we have that ability to pay attention to people and pay attention to each other in that way and to have genuine concern. So I'm inspired by people every day. Yeah. A lot more of that than than the latter, which can be the negativity we get caught in at times.
1: Right. It's funny that he noticed what you were going through. And adjusted accordingly. Isn't that cool?
0: Yeah, it was very cool.
1: And I can relate to your example because, of course, being here in Ottawa, this is one of the coldest capitals on the planet. Your work days in Chicago are probably about a normal winter day for us here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, thank you for that.
0: So, yeah, thank you. Great question.
1: Let's start off with some common understanding here. For our listeners who may not know what mindful leadership is, Set the stage, if you don't mind. Help us better understand this term, why it's important, and how your unique combination of experiences in improv theater and physical therapy can help your clients become more mindful leaders.
0: When we look at the idea of mindfulness, the root of mindfulness is the basic idea of being aware. The definition that I like to use, and I'll paraphrase it, but the definition I like to use comes from Jon Kabat-Zinn. He's one of the original folks back in the 70s who really brought this idea of mindfulness and meditation to the West. And his definition of mindfulness is being aware in the present moment intentionally without judgment. The big part of this is being aware of our experience moment by moment. And then, of course, letting go of judgment about it. In other words, that it's a good thing or a bad thing, which is the hardest part for all of us. You know, we have certain things that we like, right, our preferences and certain things that we would not prefer moment by moment. And I think his sort of definition of mindful, what it is to be mindful or mindfulness is very helpful in that way. He didn't say being mindful means meditating. We get this distinction then that we can mean, because I think a lot of times when people think of mindfulness, that's immediately what they think of. Meditation is one of the practices of mindfulness. And so I can sit formally and meditate and develop my awareness and develop the ability to hold my attention. Place my attention on something and leave it there and then become aware of things, which I think is a foundational skill if we want to be more mindful. Um, I think we do need to train the attention in that way. And then there's also all these other things that we can be mindful when we're eating. I can be mindful in our conversation, Harry right. or not. I could try to do two or three other things while we're trying to talk, right, which we can have this experience of. So at the root, it's really being aware intentionally on purpose present in the present moment and paying attention to what's actually happening for us internally and then, of course, externally. So that's really mindfulness. And then we get into the practices of which meditation is one of them.
1: The meditation itself, that's really a focused period of time where you're building a skill and that practice is all useful in building the skill for game time, which just happens to be real life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When we're driving down the freeway, when we're at work, when we're working with our teams, all that sort of thing.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and there's a real gift to that, and I know you're a meditator as well, but there is that gift of learning how to be with moment-by-moment experience, and so I think when we meditate, we're training ourselves and training the mind, training our ability to see how we become reactionary, I like this, I don't like that, and what's so funny about the whole thing is that you're just sitting there, nothing's happening, right? You're just sitting there. Right. You watch all these reactions that you have to just simply sitting there. You have reactions to thoughts. We have reactions to sensations, how you have reactions to how you feel in the moment. It's a real gift to be able to see that because you get really good at being uncomfortable and not being in reaction to being uncomfortable. You also learn how to be not in reaction to having a really good feeling and knowing that the good feeling is going to go away. Nothing is permanent. It's a real gift to be able to sit and to learn and develop that skill. And of course, neuroscience is helping us understand more and more of like, well, what really happens when we're able to do that? Literally the changes that happen in the brain. And I think this is the other really fantastic thing that, that we see from the practice.
1: You said something there that I find easier said than done, and that is just being with it, whatever it happens to be, whether you sit down and you want to meditate for 15 minutes or half an hour or something like that. And it's, one of those days where you're just feeling really good. Yeah. And you've just got that excitement inside of you. Thoughts just keep coming. Or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe something not so good happened at work today. You sit down and you're sitting for your 15 minutes or half an hour, whatever it might be. You're just being with that situation without being caught up and carried away by it. I find that is a very challenging thing.
0: It is very challenging. It's sort of like go to the gym to work out our bodies. It's a practice, and it's a skill that we can build. We need to do it every day. It works a lot like a lock on a door. Locks just have one inherent design flaw. You have to turn the key. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You have to do it, you know?
1: There's an action required.
0: There's an action required. It's anything but passive, for sure. Terry, what you're saying is it is a very difficult skill, and let's look at benefits of learning that skill when we start talking and bringing this into the world of leadership. I think what most people really want when leaders are faced with decisions every single day, as we all are just in our human life, but we want to know that we're making wise choices. I think the gift of bringing this practice, whether the idea of mindfulness and meditation and bringing these practices into our lives and then, of course, into our work, is that we are faced with these decisions in the working world and we want to know that given the circumstances as they show up in the moment, that we can make really wise choices. In other words, choices that will benefit me will benefit you know, the other group of people I'm representing as well as benefit society as a whole. It's very difficult to make wise decisions when you're in reaction, when you're caught up in the reactivity of wanting to hang on to something or push something away. You're really going to only have either or choices. And I think any of us that have sort of been in those situations are in a pattern of fear, really, which is what that is. We only see the world through either or either I get what I need or you get what you need, but we can't have it both ways. Right. I do think this has major, major impacts in business. I think it has major impacts in our society, which we've been seeing and and reading about for a long time now. When we're in reactivity, we really don't have a lot of choices, and we're not going to have access to our deepest wisdom, for sure.
1: Yeah, there's the old chemical reaction that happens. Your logical thinking gets shut down when you're in that zone where you're being triggered.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. I love that you said, you know, the physiology, because this isn't simply just a, and you know, again, research on the brain. We have a whole chemical cocktail that starts to happen <laughs> when we get in reactivity. And once that train starts and starts leaving the station, it is very, very tricky to start pulling that back and getting ourselves back into a space and getting all of our brain coherence functioning well. Very important, I think, Harry.
1: For me, one of the things that's useful is picturing the two different ends of the spectrum. People that I know Who have been triggered in that way and really tend to have a hard time separating themselves from the emotion that happens. And they tend to be very reactive, very impulsive. That doesn't tend to play out very well. And at the other end of that spectrum, uh, when I think about leaders that I've worked with or worked for in my past, that tend to have that figured out, they tend to be very calm and very focused and they can detach and watch what's happening whether they're getting worked up or not, they have an ability to mentally stay separate from it, but still know what's going on. And that allows them the ability to manage that a little bit easier. With that calmness and focus, the metaphor that I like to use is remaining steady like a keel on a ship that keeps it floating straight and true, even if the waters are stormy all around it.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful metaphor. What I like about that metaphor, when you're present and you can stay present, even when the waves are knocking you around like that, you're really not at the effect of external circumstances then. You're not being drugged around by the nose by life. So that's a beautiful metaphor. I actually like that a lot. I'm using that.
1: Well, yeah, feel free. Yeah. I, believe it or not, I stole it from John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I wanted to ask you, because I think this is helpful for our audience When you're working with people, and I know that you work with both individuals and organizations, so we might have to separate that out a little bit. Are there some typical activities or tips and tricks that you would give to people? What sort of work would you typically get engaged in if you're working with individuals or organizations?
0: Just to give you a real practical exercise that I like to use with people is making a distinction. And and this helps people working with thought, interpretation, that sort of thing, is making a very clear distinction between facts and stories. Stories also known as thoughts. Right. This was an exercise I learned that I need to give a nod to one of my greatest teachers, Katie Hendricks from the Hendricks Institute. She's out in California. You know, this is where I first learned this exercise, but you really look at a situation and say, okay, what are really the facts? For example, I get an email from my boss and it says something like, hey, stop by my office before you leave today. That's all it says in the subject line. There's not even anything in the body of the email. And so you can just immediately notice if most of us were to get an email like that. Flags, alarms. (laughs) Bells, exactly. The bells are ringing. Yeah. Immediately we layer on sort of, and this is what happens when we get in the unknown too. We don't know what him or her wants to talk about, that sort of thing. But one of the things you get in in touch with very quickly is how quickly the brain interprets and tries to add meaning to that. So the fact is we recorded how we get to facts or what the video camera would record. Yeah. So the video camera would literally just record, I open the email, here are the words on the screen, pixels. And that's it. That's all that happened. But boy, when you start putting things in the story column, so you have one column back right and you put things in the story column, boy, you can layer that on real quickly. We tend to then get caught up in believing our stories and before we know it, we're off to the races and reactivity. And so I really work with clients It's a very simple, elegant exercise, but it gets really to the root of how we get caught up in our interpretations of things and in our brain trying to predict what's going to happen. And if we pay attention to it, it's sort of in a less than savory way. Um, (laughs) We never, wow, she must want to give me a promotion. (laughs) We never do that, right? Sort of always trying to keep us safe um, unnecessarily. So that's a real simple exercise. And by the way, I do that with individuals. I do it with teams. And I work with teams. Typically, I do a lot of team coaching. And teams will get caught up. I was working with several different teams in different ways. But one team, they were going through a big financial adjustment. You know, the stories that they were telling themselves about what that was going to mean and getting themselves really wrapped around the axle, same thing. I mean, it happens with people. And it sort of just starts to ripple out. And they don't really realize that they're adding a lot of um, stories onto very simple facts. that's a real simple thing that I do, which in my world falls right into the bucket of mindfulness. Are they aware? Are they aware of what's really happening? And what was really happening was they were getting themselves caught up in a lot of stories.
1: Right. So on the individual level, I imagine that there's some private practice that needs to happen. Somebody has to sit and sort of pay attention. How about on the organizational level? What do you do with organizations to say, you know what? We noticed this trend. We really think that we could use some help in this regard.
0: There are a few things that I think are important to make a distinction around when you start bringing this work into organizational life. One is mindfulness, meditation, all these practices work. That really, to me, is not that much of a mystery at this point, and it works pretty well for most people. And I can say more about that in a minute. Now we start talking about putting in an organizational context, so now we're taking these practices and whatever practices they want. So There could be meditation, there could be the practice of fact versus story, there could be compassion practices, all these sorts of things. We have to define very clearly what we mean and then how does that really show up in the organization. By the time we get into the organizational context, there are a few things that start to really matter. One is, does the full leadership support this movement, this initiative? This goes with anything, (laughs) you know, anything you want to bring into organizational life. If the full leadership team really isn't sold on this is how this is going to show up or this is what we want to do, then nothing's going to work.
1: Right. Undermined. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is one of the things that gets written about quite a bit in the uh, literature as well. If the leadership from the senior level all the way down, depending on how large the organization is, isn't committed to also practicing. In other words, oh, this is for them. This isn't for me or this isn't for us. You know? Yeah. It doesn't matter. There's nothing that's going to work well. That's not a limit of the approach or not a limit of the intervention. If we talk about it that way, that's my science, a healthcare background coming out. But it's not the intervention that's the issue per se. It's really what's being rewarded and acknowledged in the organizational context. And do we have, quote, buy-in from everybody across the spectrum? So that's the first thing, honestly, when I work with organizations, it's like, okay, well, where's everybody landing? How do you want this to look? And I like to tell organizations a lot that in most instances, this is a grow into it, not go into it sort of thing that we have to start at a certain level of the organization and kind of work its way through. And so it's not these these sorts of making these additions into culture and these additions into organizations don't typically happen overnight. That's the second part. So, you know, what's the commitment level of Bringing these things into the organization, and it's, it's not just, "Hey, we're just going <laughs> to just going to throw this stuff against the wall and see if it sticks." It has to be sort of intentional, and it's a long game, really. Quite honestly, uh, it's not anything that people bring into the organization for a week or so and have it stick. If it's something they're really trying to get to have long term impact, then it has to be over a period of time for sure. So, those are the two big things at, at the organizational level. Mm-hmm. And then the third part of that is, you know, letting people sort of find their way with the different practices. Different things land for different people at different times. This is the one part of meditation that I think is very important to talk about that really people are not talking about that much, quite honestly, is that there are experiences with meditation that people have that it doesn't go well. And when they're looking at, like, well, what is that? Where they're trying to find, like, what are the contributing factors to that? For sure, a history of trauma. People have had a history of traumatic childhood or trauma in their life, or they're looking at the effects of PTSD. It can absolutely be helpful. However, it usually is best handled with a therapist or someone who's experienced in working with people had trauma that maybe be unresolved and can also add in the mindfulness and meditation component so that's just really now being talked about. It hasn't been talked about very much, but I think it's something that I've been talking about more and more when I work with groups because I think it's important that people understand if you start struggling with certain parts of this, there could be a reason like it's not because you can't do it <laughs> you know yeah, they tend to try to blame themselves quite a bit. So that also has to be stressed when I work with teams. So by the time I get to the organizational level, if I'm working with a leadership team of 160 people, I speak to that very openly because it can really be sort of a moment for people to go, oh, you know, without them having to reveal what's gone on in their personal lives for the past 15 years, but they kind of have their own moments of like, oh, okay, this is something I need to look out for. So I think that's important as well. Long answer, Terry.
1: No, good answer. Very good answer. You know, I've heard it said before that running a business is easy until you introduce people. it's kind of true in some respects because we come in so many different varieties and temperaments and the rest of it put all those people in close proximity to each other we've gone away from cubicles there are no more walls separating people the amount of personal space that we've got is shrinking and so the closer we get to each other in our work environments out there the more that these differences can create some friction in between people.
0: Right, and what happens and how do we manage these human connections? And then what happens when we don't have them? I mean, we're seeing both. I think there's a point to what you're saying there from both perspectives. What happens now as we're becoming more of a remote workforce. True. I think there very different approaches need to be used.
1: As we go forward and the amount of information that's out there, the speed of business, the proximity to our coworkers, and the differences between people, The more that this kind of an approach is really valuable. And I hope that this message really gets out there wide and far because I think that there are so many organizations that could truly benefit from this. One example that's coming to mind is Microsoft. Microsoft has actually gone down the road of implementing a mindfulness strategy at work, which is fantastic. And one of the ways that that has been put into practice is every time they sit down for a meeting, there's a period of time that everybody is quiet before a meeting starts which allows them to sort of disconnect from whatever business they were just involved in, whatever meeting they were just in, whoever they were talking with, and then get centered so that they have a clean slate to move forward on that meeting. And I think that is a brilliant approach, and I wish more organizations would look to that and look to people like you, Daphne, to try to figure out how can we use these best practices to help us so that we are staying more focused and more clear.
0: I love that how you start meetings. I'm going to tell you a real simple practice fits into mindfulness. This is going to sound so goofy, but I'll expand on it. It's just starting and ending meetings on time. Yeah, that is a major practice in mindfulness. This is our agreement, and um, we said we'd start at nine. I can't tell you how much time and energy I watch organizations waste and burn by not starting meetings on time, people not showing up for meetings on time, the meeting then running over. This is real world practice of. What is it to be very aware in a world of integrity? And I think this is a part of mindfulness practices that really gets skipped over, as we kind of think of sort of the meditation and being present. If you really look at these practices from the whole, generosity actually was a very big part of mindfulness practice. True. When you have the opportunity to give something, give it. <laughs> we sort of latched onto the meditation part in the Western world, but not so much the generosity part of it. Yeah. Discipline is another part of it. Patience. There's sort of these other giving, wise effort, exertion. Um, not too much effort, but just the right amount. And then meditation is part of it. I think there are these other parts of when we start talking about being mindful that organizations really can use. And that's a real simple one as well. Start in your meetings on time. It's a huge deal. Boy, it really get people riled up that <laughs> suddenly they start they start showing up and the meeting has started. It's like you can't walk in five minutes after the meeting started, but the meeting's going to start at nine. Yeah. And it's sort of these little things that really fit in with those same practices of being mindful that that doesn't feel too mystical. But boy, when you get into a habit of not doing that and suddenly the organization starts to say, look, this is how we're going to do it going forward. We're not going to wait. We're not going to delay time. We're all going to be in the room. Whoever's there is going to start the meeting and we're going to move forward. It's pretty fantastic to watch what happens. And taking a moment of pause for one to two minutes at the beginning is a beautiful exercise.
1: I love what you're doing for individuals and for organizations with DS Leadership Life. I wish you the absolute best. But before we roll here, I want to ask you a couple more questions. The first one is this. What advice would you give to leaders out there today?
0: I think the advice that I would give to leaders today is don't assume just because you got promoted into a leadership position that you should know how to magically lead a group of people. I think this is one of the weirdest things that we do in leadership for some reason, and I don't know why, but it's sort of like I was really good at walking, and someone watched me walk, and they are like, wow, she's amazing at walking. You know what she should do is drive. We should actually (laughs) drive the car. This is at every level. Yeah. They got into their first leadership role because they were good at the job that they were originally hired to do. Yeah. Well, I think leaders who are struggling, but leaders who are like, man, this is much harder than I imagined. Yeah. It is. Leadership's easy until we put people in the mix, right? Yeah. I think the best advice that I can give to leaders at any level is really go out and spend some time developing your leadership skills. It's a major part of your job now. Uh, It is your job. Thinking that you shouldn't or couldn't spend time developing your leadership skills is just a real disservice to you. And then, of course, the people that you lead. That's the advice that I give to leaders. What have you done to really develop your actual leadership skills? And they sort of just look at me like, what do you mean? And I'm like, exactly. (laughs) So I think that's the best advice, yeah.
1: There's something to be said about that whole space of the emerging leader. There's no magic manual out there. There's no checklist saying do this, that, and the other thing, and you're going to be great at your job. And for most of those folks, they don't know enough to ask. I think having that guidance and advice and a mentor or a coach, very, very valuable, very important piece of the puzzle. Here's another question for you. What does inspired leadership mean to you?
0: When I think about the word inspire, it really means to invoke in some way, to fill. Yeah. I think inspired leadership is really filling people. I think the head, the heart, and the gut. So filling people with the rational part of what we need to do in leadership, but also the heart, and then that survival part of us. And so I think it's really inspiring. It's really filling people up in that way with the things that will make them great, that will allow them to thrive. When I think about inspired leadership, that's really what I think. And I was thinking specifically of people who have in leadership, you know, who have inspired me these, these moment by moments when they make the tough decision or they take a great situation and make it even better. And I think that's really what inspired leadership is it's filling up in a way that brings a lot of positivity and wisdom to people's experience.
1: Well, I think you've contributed to our wisdom today. You've made all of us a little bit smarter, a little better, a little bit more wise. So thank you so much, Daphne Scott. Or should I say, Dr. Daphne Scott for joining us here today on the Inspiring Leaders Show, for sharing your perspectives and your ideas on mindful leadership. You've really given us lots to think about and lots to work towards.
0: I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Terry. You're you're very welcoming and I really enjoyed the conversation and it was my pleasure to be here today. So thank you so much.
1: With pleasure. And thank you to all of our listeners for your time and attention. We appreciate your ears and your minds, and I hope that you picked up some valuable perspectives today. Join us again next time when we welcome another great leader who will help us all to become even more inspiring leaders. Thanks very much, everybody. Take care and bye for now.